The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. Well, uh, one of the things I'd like to talk about is the making of family. And um, I want to say something about patriarchy. And I want to say something about the time that we live in. Um, One of the ways that I've been talking about the time that we live in is that we're on a stormy sea and we have to build a lifeboat. Which, of course, sounds impossible, right? (laughs) But I have this belief that the tools and the paradigms that we've been given since birth are no longer operative, and that basically the work that we need to do now is certainly about community building, but it's about using operating in a spiritual mode. And when I say spiritual, um, I mean I'm referring to the energy that connects you to me and each of us to everything that is. And I think Thich Nhat Hanh talks about it maybe in terms of we're all interbeings that know me without you, that we're so interconnected with animal, vegetable, mineral, earth, air, water, wind, sun. I mean, we're all a part of that. And that when you really grasp that, when you can really feel that and operate in the world as though there's no separation, That's the revolution. That is the revolution. Um, I should give you an idea of where I come from. Um, I was born on the south side of Chicago right at the end of the Second World War. Um, I was born in December. The atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of that year. In November of that year, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, and Dizzy Gillespie went into a studio in New York City. The ban on recording was off, and they uh, really kicked off something that ended up being called the bebop movement. And jazz is very, very important to me. I grew up around music. And that paradigm of creativity explains a lot about how I operate in the world. And I'm very clear about that artistic paradigm connecting me to Africa, but also connecting me to the land I live on. Uh, On my mother's side of the family, 
um, those people were African, Native American, and European, and on my father's side, primarily African and Native American. My mother's family escaped out of Kentucky before the Civil War, and they made their way into Ontario, Canada. And I had a great-great-great-grandfather who was one of the conductors on the Underground Railroad positioned in Sandusky, Ohio. He was a barber, and he was cutting hair, and he was also helping people escape. Uh, they settled in a place called, well, they wanted to call it Dawn, Ontario. But the German immigrants were so strong that it ended up being called Dresden. And the man who originally created a settlement for escapees, his name was Josiah Henson. Josiah Henson wrote his own story about being in slavery and how he escaped. Harriet Beecher read it, and it really informed a lot of what ended up being in Uncle Tom's cabin. That name, Uncle Tom, has really been distorted because the man who initiated a settlement in Ontario was a very radical man and obviously didn't believe in servitude. I have a lot of very strong-willed women in my family on both sides. Uh, I was told last fall that by my aunt, my, my father's youngest sister, that my grandmother had a terrible temper and that she could cuss as well as anybody on the street. By the time I came around, I never heard her say anything. I mean, I never grew up around people cussing in my home. I mean, people didn't even say hell or damn, much less some of those other words that we all know. I just never heard it. It was very orderly. And they were people who came out of Canada, who had access to a lot of education and could speak, you know, standard English and uh, black English. And my father's side, they came out of the Mississippi Delta and the Arkansas Delta, and they were essentially farmers. We were farmers on both sides. But uh, I was hearing about the like fierce tempers of my grandparents, and I never saw that part of them. Like my grandfather, she said, was really kind of obsessive about sharpening his knife. And suggested that he was probably one of those people who left the South because some man offended or attacked him, and he responded with his knife and left and went to Chicago around right at the beginning of the Depression. He told me he left because of the Bull Weevil, which could be true, because the way that uh, plantation system worked after slavery, was that you were a sharecropper. Anybody know about that or have that in their background, sharecropping? Yeah. So that means 
you worked on somebody else's land, you didn't own it, and you had to buy seeds every year from the company store or the plantation store, and you always owed, always owed. And when the boll weevil wiped out the cotton crops, you know, back in the early part of the last century, that means people who were poor and struggling were just really uh, still in slavery. So he went north. And that's where my parents met. Uh, and my parents' generation really set the stage for what became the Civil Rights Movement. Because that was a generation where the Second World War was what they were exposed to. They went off and they fought, or they stayed home and they were, you know, struggling with stuff here. But they knew the contradiction between going to fight for democracy and, you know, against Hitler, for instance, and they knew what was happening here. And once you put your life on the line and came back here, there was a lot of impatience about business as usual. And though we frightened our parents, you know, those of us who came of age in the 60s, uh, because we had been indoctrinated in mainstream society with this idea that Africans were dirty, stupid, poor, uh, just the refuse of the earth and had never created or done anything worthwhile. So when the 60s came around, one of the main triggers and probably one of the major traumas in my early life was the murder of Emmett Till. You people familiar with Emmett Till? Uh, a young boy from Chicago, same town I was from, he was a few years older than me. One of the things when I was a kid was that a lot of my playmates in the summer, you would go south to stay with grandparents or aunts or uncles. And that was a very important time. And I know that me being born in the north, living on the south side of Chicago, it was a very southern culture. I mean, when I first came to Minnesota, I had a southern accent. And that I learned games and songs from my playmates who either came from the south or spent the summers there. And they brought back just stories and songs and dances, and there was a time when um, a dance would move from one black community to the other. Uh, you know, like your cousin might come to visit from New York, and they'd show you a dance, and then that dance was then popular in Chicago, and then it would move to other places. Um, black newspapers were distributed through the Pullman car uh, workers, the guys who worked on the railroad, they were a very important part of the civil rights movement because papers like the Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago Defender were spreading news, cultural news, political news, and you had cultural centers like Harlem and New York City where these brilliant thinkers were beginning to articulate to us that we should be looking to Africa 
to reclaim our cultural roots and have a really rational sense of who we were as human beings in the world. So those of us who came of age in the 60s were, uh, we came up at a time when movement was really starting to build. And there was always news stories that indicated to us that something was changing and that we had a responsibility to embody that change and to build community and to make things better than you found them. Um, so I was a guy who, <laughs> uh, at some point, my parents became Lutherans. It was a black minister who came to Chicago and started a mission. Mission Church. His name was Moses S. Dickinson. And the name Moses just really says a lot about the whole dynamic of uh, him coming into our community, which was uh, South Side of Chicago, black, working class, and professional people. I grew up in a real community. I had an extended family. My parents in the neighborhood they grew up in uh, was one of the strong African-American communities where one of the major waves of blacks came into Chicago. They moved into uh, an Orthodox Jewish community. And in fact, when my mother and father got married in her parents' home, the Orthodox Jews on the block were also on the porch and in the living room and in the mix of everything that was happening. The synagogue was down the block on the corner. And I remember playing in front of that Star David that was like way up at the top. Um, the people in that community called Englewood, uh, they were really making culture because they were black people from a lot of different locations. And when they moved there, it's like they were somehow, as they interacted with one another, finding the common threads between being black from Louisiana and black from Georgia or black from New York City or Canada. I mean, that mix of African-American people were all in the same community, and they made family. Um, And making family in the context of African-American community, that means that you're interacting with people that live on the block or next door. And over time, because of maybe something you feel here or the ways that people borrow a cup of sugar or a cup of flour or watch their kid or you share a meal or... Or maybe you're passing uh, a, a, uh, a petition around to put up a fence to protect the children in the neighborhood from the railroad, which ran back and forth. The Illinois Central ran behind my house, bringing up people from the south who were 
escaping the oppression in in the southern U.S. Um, Can you hear me okay? I think I should jump to how I got this connection with Ethiopia. And it has everything to do with making family. Uh, I left home and went to a Lutheran college in Moorhead, Minnesota. I really wanted to get away from Chicago. Corrupt, you know, democratic machine politics. I mean, I watched the corruption of how that system worked, and I just got really disgusted with it. I wanted to get far away from home. I got really far away from home. Um, you know, there are times when I'm around people from there, you know, who like from these rural Minnesota communities where people still have Scandinavian accents. If I'm around you, I'll start sounding like you. Uh, it was only because, it was largely because I left Chicago, the south side of Chicago, surrounded by that culture and vibrancy and community and extended family that I realized I've got a culture. I come from a whole nother way of looking at the world. And um, I ended up sort of uh, learning, taking the lessons that I learned at home and my strategy for survival there was to create another family. And that ended up being the oddballs, uh, the artists, uh, the political radicals. We all found each other in this really conservative Norwegian Lutheran environment. And I had mentors there you know, professors who were very progressive and, and mentored me. One of the most important people was a woman named Eleanor Haney, who was from Del Delaware. She had a thick southern accent. She was small and thin. And, well, they eventually forced her out of that college community. But she taught me so much of being a community organizer, being an activist academic, um, the importance of working multiculturally, the importance of, again, community. And her husband, who was a, a minister, they both taught in the religion department, they kind of took me under wing and I would have access to their home when they were out of town. I watched their cat and water the lawn and stuff like that. But it was a really nice place to be and they were, you know, like parents away from home. So I learned a lot about how to create events and community learning experiences that would change, uh, help to bring about change. So, um, 
being away from home made me really hungry to learn about my culture. Once I realized, oh, I'm in this foreign environment. Um, I need to learn more about who my people are and the history. And I wasn't getting the history in that environment. They were teaching me how to be in the white world. And at that time, it became more and more clear, no, I do not want to accommodate that way of thinking or that way of being. Um, and at the same time, I had these really beautiful, deep friendships. Oh, there's one of my friends back there. <laughs> uh, we were roommates for a while, and uh, our, you know, we're brothers. We're brothers, no question. Um, but there were other relationships. I have, I have a, a Dakota mother who uh, took me under wing, actually saved my life when I was uh, working one summer in a camp and I got sick, I got very sick. I was near death and didn't realize it. Her daughter brought me home. Now this is a Dakota woman who was living in a white world. She was sort of in disguise because her mother told her, don't let anybody know. There was something really tragic that happened in that family, and it made sense for them to say, we're going underground, we're not going to be visibly Indians in the world. But this woman had such a great heart, and I'm thinking, I'm, this white girl has invited me home, she has a boyfriend, for some reason she's inviting me home, maybe because she could tell I was sick, and said, my mother will fix him. And sure enough, her mother saw me, took me to the doctor. The doctor said, um, you know, after blood test, if you had uh, gone two or three more days, you might not be here anymore. And I had contracted the mumps, which were dis misdiagnosed in Park Rapids, and so I was being treated in a way that didn't address what was really wrong. Luckily, I survived that. I have two children. Um, so anyway, I'm trying to get myself down here to Minneapolis. Uh, when I graduated, boy, hello. When I graduated, I had a double major in English and then speech, theater and speech and I got a teaching certificate for secondary English education. So one of the schools in the early part of my career that I got assigned to was uh, Jefferson, which was a junior high school over on 26th and Hennepin. And I was living in what's now called Calhoun Square. And right on the corner where there's now a restaurant on the corner of Hennepin and Lake, that used to be a Snyder's drugstore, and I was like living on the third floor, and, uh, and there was a woman down the block from Ethiopia that had a shop. Uh, back then, she called herself an Ethiopian, but she was actually Eritrean. Some of you know that history. So I used to go down there a lot, and 
she was from Africa and she had African clothes and she knew a lot of history and she was like being my teacher. And she was like maybe six months older than me, but you know, a woman that's your same age is always more mature. <laughs> she just, and you know, if you're a part of that culture, as I'll probably explain to you later, everybody, almost everybody is a merchant. I mean, you go into Ethiopia and you see uh, kiosk everywhere. You even see people on their version of 35W walking up and down the shoulder selling stuff. Uh, 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 soccer balls, um, just about anything you can imagine. So, and you know, like around the corner from the house where I stayed, there was a whole block of nothing but merchants selling clothes, selling shoes, selling purses, selling luggage. Um, and I, I don't really understand how all of that works because you would have merchant after merchant maybe selling the same thing. And that didn't seem to be a problem. And somebody explained to me, well, each merchant has their own customers and there's this relationship, and so it doesn't really matter that they're next to somebody that's selling the same thing. They've got a relation with you. Uh, so, anyway, I'm going to tell you something rather transgressive, and you're going to have to just get past it. Um, one of my fellow teachers got married to a Northwest Airlines executive. And they were leaving on their honeymoon, and they were going to Tahiti, and she asked me if I would step in for her so that she could leave early, pick up her bags, and go. I said, of course. So I walk into this classroom. I haven't told you this story. <laughs> I haven't told you the story. But I walk into this classroom, and the children are kind of milling about. In the middle of the room is this girl. And I see her, and it was sort of like getting struck by lightning. I mean, it went like that. And I said, whoa. <laughs> Let me forget about that. And then I went on about, okay, paying attention to the class. So the next day, I stop and visit Elsa. Elsa, Rez Elsa Rezene was her name. And who is sitting there but the very person I was thinking, hey, forget that. And, okay, so uh, Astaire was 17. I was a teacher. And so she and her cousin are sitting there talking, and they all figure out, oh, we all know you. And so over time, uh, they invited me to dinner at Elsa's house. And they, at that time, we didn't have all the, uh, we didn't have access to Burberry, which is a very important staple within uh, a lot of Ethiopian foods or recipes. And they just sort of made it up just based upon what they could get here. And this was like 1971, 72. So I go over there, and I'm eating this food, and 
I start to have this really strange feeling like every cell in my body is like, and I was not under the influence of anything, believe me, except this food. And I realized something really strange is happening here. And to make a long story short, over time, uh, Elsa uh, made a match between the two of us. And I was a very immature 26-year-old, um, 25, 26. And um, uh, Astaire was living with her sister, who welcomed me into their home. And as time went by, I was just a part of that family. And when their mother came here to stay, the mother um, Wahiba, she uh, just really took me in as her son. And that's how I became a part of that family. Uh, sometime later, after we got married, uh, Astaire's youngest sister came to stay with us for a while. She was about eight or nine years old. And she um, lived with us. Elsie is now 50 years old. She has one of the more popular... Uh, nightclubs in Addis Ababa called uh, La Black Rose. And a couple of years ago, uh, she stayed here for a while and brought her two adopted sons. She adopted two boys out of a out of a orphanage. Uh, one boy, the youngest boy, Lilai, when uh, my ex-wife and my sister-in-law went to this orphanage. Um, you know, they were walking around looking at the children. There was one boy who was very, very dark. Uh, beautiful black complexion and big eyes. Um, they wanted to know why was that baby on the floor in the corner. And there was a comment like, you know, he's, you know, referring to his color, you don't want to look at him. And they said, yes, we want him. And uh, so they took him home and went back again sometime later. And then there was this other little boy who was in a crib and he caught Elsie's attention, and he smiled and winked at her. <laughs> that was Kinfa. And that's his personality. He comes up with crazy stuff all the time, and you never know what he's going to come up with. So those boys lived here uh, for about a year and a half, and I was uncle or grandpa to them. When they went back home, Elsie said, you come back with us. I couldn't come right away. So I said, when I finish teaching in the fall, I'll come then. So I ended up going in December. <sighs> so first impressions of Ethiopia. I had to overcome a lot of fear just to go because I don't like to fly. And the idea of being in an airplane 
for nine plus hours was just not my first choice. But if I'm going to get there, I had to do it. And really, that has to do with dealing with one's mortality. And this practice has like really helped me at this stage of my life really become more at home with the whole reality of mortality. I've lived long enough to witness birth and death and realize that they're two sides of the same coin and it's all life. Coming in and going out of this physical world and I'm feeling like I've come to a place where I need to uh, do what my heart is telling me to do, regardless of the consequences. That there's nothing accidental about being here. And I'm feeling like I want to uh, be here. I want to give you some of my first impressions of Ethiopia. When I was riding in the street, the traffic there is crazy. Uh, there's a collective unconsciousness that knows what the rules are and somehow it works. To those without shoes. To those without shoes and those who walk in plastic sandals from China. The goat herds and the cow herds and the camel drivers. To those who pick through the garbage competing with the swine and the carrion to those who dream blossoms in the barrels of guns, to those who shape swords in the plowshares, from those who dance through hunger and thirst in a dry land because they got to, to those who gather fruits from the fields, to even those who calculate the price of everything and know the value of nothing as the spiritual poverty of greed needs compassion needs healing too. To those elders who sit alone and dream of what was and could be. To those who give birth to the next generation in the face of horror and devastation. To those who beg in the dusty byways. To those who stack hay, stone, dung, and sacks of grain in pyramids with an ancient memory. To those with soiled feet from the wearies, from the wearies roads. To those who cast their nets, harvesting the fruit of seas and fresh waters. To those who pray, chant and sing in synagogues, mosques, churches and temples for all of creation. For those who prune, plow, plant and harvest from season to season to those who serve food and drink to the corpulent and share with those near who are near starving. To those with visions of rebirth of wonder 
and sing a new song to those who tell the story, to those who refuse to lie, to those who see beyond appearances, to the dreamers reviled and ridiculed, to the lovers, artists, dreamers, mystics, poets, children, crazies, musicians. This is where the new world begins, with feet on a road to tomorrow, blistered and aching, with wounded hearts, walking step by step, day by day, breath by breath toward the next dawn and the awakening. My mind turned to home. We must let go. We must let go of the way we are living to just survive here, to just get by here in these fabricated places where we just endure here, clinging to all the manufactured illusions of joy when rationally there shouldn't have been any joy here this way. Let's let go of our air-conditioned hell. We manifest hell in places we don't even have to see. With the blood, no with the kind assistance of those with a price. There is another land of cool streams and radiant living skies. In the realm of the heart, paradise is now. Dear friends, though it's not pain-free, loosen your grip on luxuriant lies before they're ripped from you. All will be lost and all can be gained. The Awakening. I traveled north to, in a lot of ways, what's described as a sacred place. Lalibela is a really ancient town and there's really ancient churches that are carved from solid stone. Nobody today knows the technology that produced those churches. Um, what the Christians say, the Coptic Christians say, is that angels came and taught them or carved them themselves. Um, just like they really can't tell you how the pyramids were built. Uh, this is another one of those wonders that fascinate people, but you can't really say. Uh, I want to come back to that experience of going to Lalibela because that takes me into one of the more sensitive things that I want to talk about. The awakening. I see everything with hungry eyes now. Sometimes my belly aches. Sometimes my heart breaks. But there is nonetheless joy for this journey. 
I digest what I see and sense. I am what I observe and I am observed as whatever is seen by a seer, observer. But there really is no separation between observer and observed. Even if I'm the only one that knows it, my life story is about the oneness of all that is. That's how simple and complex it all is. Last night I dreamed about peeling off an old skin, discarding what was outgrown, revealing what was alive, fresh, and breathing. An awakened animal. So, um, we uh, took my sister's van and we were joined by some Ethiopian cousins who live in Italy. The children are Ethiopian and Italian. Um, they are evangelical Christians. And so, you know, in my mind, I hear that term and I have expectations of how they're going to act, how they're going to behave. It was like they were the most pleasant, fun travel companions I could have imagined. Um, so it was Amari, his wife Josie, uh, their two sons and a daughter, and uh, another one of my sisters. Uh, we all went together in this van, and we had a driver, um, a guy with dreads, <laughs> who was a lot of fun. You know, the interesting thing about people who are, a lot of times, people who are servants are, in a lot of ways, part of the family. Um, you know, eat together, share rooms you know, sleeping rooms, um, and we know about each other's lives. Anyway, so we went to Lalibela, and I remember approaching the first church, and I'm on this, it's hard to describe, but it's like this massive rock, and you walk so far, and then you look down. Well, you can see the top of the church because it's a bit above, just a little bit above. And I believe it's like in the shape of a cross, the one I remember seeing. Is that right? And when I first approached it, I, I could feel this energy. And... I guess it was kind of what I expected. But as we went through the process of entering, it was so clear that I was all of a sudden in tourist mode. And so my sense of the sacred uh, was, it's almost like it was snatched from me. But uh, we haggled about whether... Uh, me and the wife, Amari's wife is 
Italian. She's a mix of Italian Greek about whether she and I were going to pay uh, the Ferengi cost. Ferengi means foreigner. And uh, we ended up paying the Ferengi cost and the others paid a whole lot less. And that, I don't know, it just, you know, they've got to, yeah, they've got to make a living, they've got to sustain it. The church is not necessarily sustained by the government. I mean, there's some kind of relationship there, but anyway, so after having that kind of experience for a while, and I was realizing uh, that, okay, Ethiopia, the religions that are indigenous there and have been there pretty much from the beginning are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The prophet Muhammad was protected in Ethiopia when he was chased out of uh, Saudi Arabia. And so historically, there's been this very good relationship between Ethiopia and the Muslim world. It's a bit of a strain now. Things are not exactly how they used to be, but you can see the presence of both religions there. And... Um, I think there's uh, freedom for both groups to like practice their faith. Anyway, so it's like I'm realizing that I'm in the home of, I'm in one of the homes of patriarchy. And I'm spending most of my time there interacting with women and children. Um, and some of the women are beginning to tell me their stories. And I feel really on edge about talking about it, but I had a, such a strong reaction that um, it was some of the pain I experienced, seeing how patriarchy, I mean, it's here in the U.S., but... A lot of times I felt like I was walking through the Bible. I mean, this is such an ancient land. And you see people who are dressed probably like people dressed back then. And you also see uh, people that look like uh, they just caught the bus from the north side. I mean... Polarities, constant polarities. I was experiencing constant polarities in an environment that was not, uh, that was new to me. So I had to pay attention to how I was physically being present and to when I noticed myself physically reaction, reacting like, tightening up or pain in my heart or whatever the sensation was that suggested I was starting to get tight, I kept being able to tell myself to let go, to breathe, to be present, to witness, to engage. And for most of that trip, whether things were like... Uh, 
full of elation or whether I was feeling grief, I, was, I moved through all of those experiences without feeling like I want out. Um, I kept wanting to stay present and engage with people. So, I want to tell you about a woman I met whom I intend to stay in contact with and from month to month uh, give support to her children. Um, this woman I met in the home of Mimi Girma. Mimi Girma used to have an a art gallery or a shop on, right below KFAI on Riverside, Cedar and Riverside. Uh, she is also, you know, like family to me, my sister. And so she was back home and uh, she invited me to her home and I, I spent time in her compound, in her neighborhood, and uh, met her father, aunts and uncles, and neighbors who were a part of her extended family. It was just amazing. Um, one of the women uh, told me a story, and the story was that she was born in the countryside, and moved to the city in order to find work. And she ended up working in a home, you know, in someone's home, working with a family, as a, you know, cooking, cleaning, that kind of thing. While she lived in that first home, she was uh, raped by one of the men in the family, got pregnant, and had the child, but left that family, went someplace else, to another family. Now that first child is now about 21 years old, graduated from college, and is working in a, one of the banks. She went to work in another family, and the same thing happened. That boy is now about 12 years old. He's in school and really excited about environmental issues. He wants to learn more, and do something about the environment. Um, being in that woman's presence, I could see how profoundly she loves her children. Given the circumstances, I'm not sure, I don't know, um, it just seems like it would be really easy to see the perpetrator in either one of those children. But that woman was, she had an enormous, deep heart. And she nurtured these children and is supporting them. And these children, I feel, are going to are on a good path. And I want to make sure that I can do whatever I can to be supportive.
the time I spent in Mimi's father's house, elders often came over. And there was one day, I think Mimi took me to a church where her mother, her sister, and her brother are buried in one of the vaults in the church. Her brother's body is not actually there because he was murdered during the derg, and his body was never really found. Um, but it was an important day to go and bring flowers, light candles, and pray. And I went with her twice to do this. Um, we had to go up into the hills above Ares Ababa to get to this church. Her mother also left some kind of inheritance to support elders who were alone and needed care. And they keep raising money to build uh, compounds to care for these elders, uh, which I also visited. But the, the elders that I met, I don't know. It was like they made me face some ideas that I had about myself, which were kind of invisible. I mean, the love that they poured on me. I'm a stranger. I'm just walking in the door, right? And... These, Mamet, I think she was the oldest of, of the aunts, uh, blessed me, prayed over me, and it was almost like she could see something that I wasn't telling her, or maybe I don't even want to admit. But I had so much love uh, just bathed on me that despite the whole thing of patriarchy and how these women assume, assume certain things will happen to them and nobody will have to pay a price, um, I, I had to when you get wave after wave, you have to deal with your contradiction. Now, what was the negative idea that had been planted in me from childhood that somehow I was not worthy, somehow I was inadequate, somehow I was not enough? And it all had to do with, in a lot of ways, of being uh, a male of color in this environment. I had really digested it. I had taken it on and was dragging around this burden for, you know, 60 plus years. And I get around these people who are dealing with difficult circumstances who they just gave it from their hearts. And when you get that, 
If your impulse is to hoard it, something's wrong. Um, I went to Meski's mother's home. She invited me. And they had one of the nephews come across town in public transportation, which is a complicated deal. There's all these little cars and vans that are running all over town. And they have stops that I have no idea. You could not do it. You couldn't do it. Um, I guess they go from one district to another, but and there's no street signs. Well, few. People just know where to go because that's home, right? And there's been an enormous influx of people into Addis Ababa. There's like millions, and the population has like exploded over the past 20 to 15 years. I mean, it's, it's tight. I mean, it's not like New York City dense, but there's a lot of folks there. And the, the, the environment is not really designed to support that many people. So anyway, there's a special event that's happening that uh, Meski's mother is hosting. And it's called Mahabeh. That's it, right? And it's like each month, one of the women in this church community hosts a gathering. And they can be, well, I guess prayer is always a part of it, but it can be for a lot of different reasons that they're coming together. Um, Meski's mother uh, had prayed for something, and when that prayer was answered, she committed to doing this gathering in her home. Uh, when was I there? In February, every February. So, this is a women's gathering, and they're all pretty much dressed in white in traditional clothing, um, and uh, one of the nephews, Emmanuel, who came and picked me up and brought me to uh, mother's house, he and I were the only males in the room. Because it was a women's gathering, and somehow mother was big-hearted enough to <laughs> invite me to come, and I felt very welcome. So um, the, they fed me, and we're sitting in a circle in the living room. Everybody that can fit in that largest circle is sitting there. And then there's a few people sitting on the side because there's just no more room. It's like all these women have come from the neighborhood. So I'm sitting there, and I look down to the other side of the room, and something strange began to happen for me. All of a sudden... Two of the women who are down toward that end, um, all of a sudden I was experiencing the presence 
of my grandmother and her sister. And I had this big emotional reaction. And I started crying. And of course, they're wondering what's, what's going on, what's wrong. And so I just figured I'll just tell them the truth. <laughs> and I explained to them what, what I'm seeing. Gee, that's odd, isn't it? And there was, it was almost like, oh, okay. Like, like it's normal. <laughs> and it was just such acceptance of the fact that I was having, you know, what we might call a paranormal experience. But I know, I know that my grandmother and her sister were there. I mean, I was looking at them. Um, lo there were other kind of mystical kind of experiences because the energy in that place is just so, it's intense and it's subtle at the same time. The amount of writing that I did there, this is just some of it. I was, you know, as my writing process is one where it's almost like I'm listening and I'm writing what I hear. And it comes from over here. You see over here? <laughs> so uh, there was a, I, I gathered a lot of material there. I rewrote stuff that I had started here long ago. All of a sudden, it just sort of came together. Um, oh, I feel like I should read another poem. What's our time like? Okay, I should stop so that if people want to talk, we can talk. Uh, I want to read the poem that I wrote before I left for Ethiopia. It's uh, called Home at the End of Another World. I hid in my mother's womb, curled and turning in suspended animation, raiding, waiting for the right time. But then the bombs fell on Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Uh, why did I ever come out into this world at this time? The flames, the screams, the stench, heartbeats and silences, destruction. But there, in the dining room, in a brownstone on the south side of Chicago, my grandmother's jasmine spirit billowed and blew in the sheer white curtains. Hot whispers of spring in the greening, in the blooming, my mother and father entangled. Sweat, flesh, breath, twists, turns, grips, caress, little death. And the world spinning turned and turning and my spirit said yes to a new year, to a new day. Now is the time. And nine months later, I awakened in dream time between darkness and light, between yesterday and tomorrow, old year and new. Now here, here we are at Fukushima, the blessed island. 
rocked by tsunami and earthquakes, pouring poison. Fukushima, Hiroshima, Fukushima, Hiroshima. And the fire burned this time. So I am born again. I am born again with my own song, known and knowing from lifetimes of experience that the darkest hour is still just before the dawn, and I returned to Abyssinia. So, um, questions. I had no idea what I was going to say or talk about, but I hope you heard something uh, of use or have curiosities about one thing or another. I think you're first, you're next. Bruce, uh, thank you for your talk. Um, something you said really caught me, but before I get to that, just real quickly, I'll mention passing. This is Dr. Stevenson out of North Carolina. He's written a number of books on uh, reincarnation and what have you. And it's just a real curious thing. He's, he states that the, the essence of meeting people from previous lives and other cultures around the world a lot different here. We stuff we would never think of bringing up because we think people would think we're crazy. In other parts of the world, like in Lebanon or what have you, it's, it's a very everyday thing that they talk about, very matter of fact, that oh, this person's So it's just you mentioning that just triggered that the, the, the sense of that is just around the world. So I just thought it's worth thinking. But you know, you were talking about uh, dealing with the sense of Unworthiness. You have this uh, emotional. I don't remember the, the full sequence, but you were coming to some degree of terms with this sense that from early ages, from racial overtones and what have you. Um, is is that something? I I like to know a little more how that manifested. Meaning that is that something that has been part of your life all through life? That sense of occasional sense of I don't want to put words into it, but that sense of uh, unworthiness or seeing with something, and then that, I forget the exact point or event in your travels there where it really forced itself on you. Um, you know, was there some sort of connection? Was there. Oh. Hmm. I'm not sure how to answer that. Um, I think. Most, I mean, I think everybody has their own version of how they come to feel inadequate. I mean, it's not limited to. Can I just throw just my motivation for asking that? Is I have that same thing, different origins, but I really related to that. They have these things come up, and I don't even know, you know where exactly. Yeah, I think that's why it's important for us to really tell our own story. Because when I first began to perform my poetry, I had just come out of the black arts movement. And I was writing specifically for a black audience. Because we were saying that our art needed to reflect back to our community their strength, their beauty, their history. And so I wasn't trying to reach anybody else. But I was brought into a situation where somebody said, do a reading for the Farm Labor Association. 
So all I had was the work that I had written for a black arts environment. And I began to discover that first time that because I was writing very truthfully from my experience, somebody from Grafton, North Dakota could somehow relate to it, even though it was about this black boy from the south side of Chicago. So children of color exposed to the mass media and the school system are constantly bombarded with negative messages about who they are, who they can or can't be or do. It's constant. And I think it ends up a lot of times being invisible to them because the negativity is normal. And to unpack it uh, takes some struggle. And, and a lot of times, or sometimes, when you're in that environment and you're like waking up, one of the first reactions is to be rageful because you've been lied to, you've been abused. And one of the first responses when people are, are aware of, oh, I didn't deserve that. That was not about me. Somebody just really did a number on me. Rage is a natural response. So when people have that natural response, a lot of times they get labeled as criminal because they're in the normal environment and they're saying, no, this does not work for me or I don't accept that. So we have this whole drama now in the Minneapolis school system where they're beginning to talk about uh, the pipeline from the schools to prisons. I've witnessed it. I've seen it. It's real. I want to thank you also. I'm of your age group, and I grew up in New York. Uh, where my parents were from the West Indies, from Barbados, Panama, and the, I enjoyed hearing you talk about community uh, because that was what I experienced as well. Uh, anybody in the neighborhood, I live in New York, who all, we all knew each other, you know, the families knew each other, um, I couldn't get away. But I thank you for, for bringing that to fruition, to bring words to the experience that I had as well. I don't want to ask you any questions. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important to name that because that has been my survival strategy living in Minneapolis. I have, uh, an, ex I have an extended family here, and the people come from a lot of different places. Like, later this month, I'm going to be once again gathering with uh, a family that's been close to me since sometime in the late 70s, and we always celebrate uh, Passover together. And I relate to that as somebody who had grandparents and great-grandparents who were very rooted in the Old Testament. And you know, that whole paradigm of the Old Testament story had so much resonance 
with people from the early part of the 20th century and into the late 19th century. So, um, but I, I keep trying to pass on that tradition to my children. And in whatever environment I, I'm in, I'm trying to model what it means to make family with people you're not related to by blood. And it's a heart thing, and it's a spiritual thing. When we listen to each other's stories, we begin to find out that that person who appears to be so different from me really does have something deeply in common with me. And that's where we can connect. And that's when we can begin to talk about what's happening in our environment. What's our shared problems? How can we collectively change this? Because really we're at a point where the most significant or the toughest problems in the world, we cannot solve them in isolation from one another. And we're in the most turbulent time that any human being has ever seen before. Which again brings me back to this practice. Because I need to be able to deal with a lot of constant change, with traumatic things and stay engaged. Keep my feet on the ground. Take time to like rejuvenate myself. But I'm really looking at my meditation practice as a survival strategy and will allow me to be in my elder role for hopefully quite a while longer. Because I have children and grandchildren, and I feel really motivated to model not the usual response to trauma. And I was raised by people who had been through trauma, who were raised by people who had been through trauma, and nobody ever addressed it, and nobody ever realized that there was healing from that, for that. So, I'm really, I feel really fortunate that I was able to find this community because uh, I'm really basically an introvert and I'm being pulled into this life of I can't uh, just submit to wanting to turn up the quiet and isolate myself. I, I don't have that option. Um, I was given some things from childhood that didn't even make sense to me when I was a child. Like, I had the idea when I was really, really young that there were some threads of truth through just about all the religions. And we ought to pay attention to those threads and maybe not get so caught up with respect people's differences, but build upon what's true. So, what's true? I also, yes? Uh, I, I want to let you finish. No, I can stop, please. I, I heard it said that the opposite, this is something that just jumped out at me as you were 
telling your story. I've heard it said the opposite of patriarchy is not matriarchy, but fraternity. And you touched on uh, your observation of the patriarchal aspect of Ethiopian culture. And I wanted to know if that had any impact on your worldview or uh, understanding of yourself. Hmm. Well, I think I went there already having been mentored by uh, some really strong feminist who, uh, for whatever reason, decided that they wanted to mentor me and gave me a lot. And so I began to see, understand things about what it meant to be male in this world. Uh, I, I had a mother who was very clear about the fact that she she felt as though she felt she felt as though she was treated unfairly and like deference was always given to her brother and maybe in a way that was a good thing because her strong will made her stronger <laughs> i mean her resistance to that reality made her stronger and when you're I think when you're around when you're in certain cultures where male privilege is like really really strong it can play out in some really brutal ways now we know that in the US there are a lot of women some of them single mothers who do the same work as men but consistently get paid less and Somebody wants to justify that. Um, I had such a strong reaction to the stories that I was hearing from women there that the thought that crossed my mind was that I, if I was a woman in that environment, I could not handle my rage. I, would, I felt like I would lose it. I couldn't handle it. And it and it's, has some similarity to how I also react to racism. Like, uh, you can't, I can't react to every sort of racist thing that happens, but there are times when it's like right in my face and personal, when I'm very clear about the fact that this is not okay, this stops right here. Um, and I think everybody has some version of that. I mean, it's not unique, and we ought to be able to understand one another because there's a connection between, I mean, I assert that all the isms are connected, and it's a reflection of how fragmented our vision is in the world. We've been conditioned to, like, really believe that this concept of race is something of substance, that it's real. Now, racism is real, but the difference between us genetically is like infinitesimal. But we have organized ourselves into nations, into classes, into you know religions, all these categories, which encourages us to see separation and fragmentation 
And I, I really believe that people should be respected in terms of how they're different, however they're defining that. But there's a way where we deal with difference in a pretty dysfunctional way. It doesn't really benefit us. Um, you know, like we have an economic system that's really based upon exploitation of the environment, right? The environment is devastated and it's talking back to us. Tsunamis, earthquakes, uh, Storms, garbage. <laughs> um, and it's talking back to us, and we need to listen and really move toward a whole nother way of life. You know, like, really quick. You're frowning. <laughs> yeah? Um, I think it's pretty special that these women invited you to their group. Because I know I was working on a history theater project with some Somalians, people from Somalia, and I was doing a lot of oral history. And some of the men had wives who were raped, etc., who were not told of these things. They didn't even know what had happened in the war to their own yeah. their own people. Uh, because there were all sorts of ideas about what that would mean if they knew about that. And so it wasn't a free talk. So the fact that these women invited you. So I guess my question is, and I don't think you can answer it because you were in it, but what is it about your bearing or your, your presence that allowed them to see that you were um, not taking with this patriarchy thing? Like, what is it about you as a man that uh, got this... This key, this door opened, and did you do anything specifically to the? Did you ever say anything to any um, man about how, wow, this is different, or anything? Mm. Well, I don't know. I think in my life, I've had many occasions when I was encountering somebody who seemed to kind of just know. Um, I, I, I have no way of explaining that. Um, I've had a... I'm not sure how much to go into this. Um, I've had... Like back in the 80s, there was an elder woman in the community whose husband was ill, and she came to me and asked me, if I would help him. No, I don't know what specifically what she meant, but my first response was to just go inside and go inside and look at this man and see what was going on. And um, I saw um, that he had some material in there, in his abdomen, and I felt that if they removed whatever it was, he would be okay. It was almost like it was a jelly kind of stuff. 
And they operated on him, and they removed the stuff, and he's all right. I mean, I didn't do anything. I just told her what I saw. Why she came to me and asked me that, I don't know. Um, in 1983, when I went to my first sweat lodge, that was like a, a doorway that I went into, and my life changed drastically. Um, and there were things... I, w I went to my first sweat lodge, and if I had have been uh, in a different family environment, they might have medicated me and or hospitalized me. I mean, I was going through a lot of changes physically. Physically, lots of stuff was going on that I couldn't handle. Well, I did handle it. But it seemed like during that time, people I kept meeting people who seemed to know, oh, you're going through this kind of spiritual crisis and you need to talk to so-and-so or whatever. So uh, I was really lucky that I didn't get medicated. Um, and I don't know how I was sort of meeting people who could help me and I wasn't telling them what, anything was wrong. <laughs> so... Yes. Yeah. Um, lots of comments and questions, but the one I really want to focus on: the love you experience. How much of that can be held was sort of a ubiquitous cultural thing that was part of what they do to welcome outsiders in, or how much of it had to do with your unique set of circumstances that brought you there in the connections you had. You get what I'm driving at? Yeah, that's a tricky question to answer because when I first began to interact with the community um, here, uh, the community had a reputation of not being very welcoming to anybody from the outside. And here I was appearing in the community uh, in relationship to one of their women. And one guy that I knew from that time was back at home, he said, we looked at you and wondered, where did this highly yellow brother come from dating our sister? <laughs> so there were some unpleasant things that happened here, but... Um, I think I've grown to be deeper in the community and participate in things that um, I, f I feel very fortunate to participate in. I think that there is, the culture is in crisis right now, um, like all of our cultures are in crisis right now. But I, I don't think people all of a sudden just give that kind of compassion or love. 
uh, out of the clear blue. I think that's authentically who they are. It was so strong and it just kept coming in wave after wave. Um, you know, it could be that I was supposed to be there at that time and I feel like I'm coming back and I need to reimagine my life here. That, you know, I've been an activist for quite a while and realize that, well, I actually come from activists. Um, you know, going back into the 19th century, people who were resisting. But I think now I'm at a stage in my life where I need to be a spiritual mentor to activists and not so much be on the front lines an activist myself. I was talking with Mark about a week ago, and he said um, I should consider um, having a space that would support doing my spiritual work in that way. So um, I'm going to be asking a, you know, a cross-section of people from the communities I'm connected with. You know, I'm mentoring young people who are Hmong, Native American, um, first-generation African immigrants, uh, uh, Chicanos. I mean, I couldn't have dreamed 30 years ago that I would be in the places that I am now, connected to the communities that I am, and to be in an elder role at this time in multiple communities. I don't know anybody else doing that. So to me, it kind of begs the question of, I need to pay attention. I need to build on this. I need to see if I can help to hold a space that allows people to begin to create a new culture that somehow reflects all of us, that we all own somehow. There's got to be that environment or that laboratory. And once again, I feel like Vipassana is one of the tools that more of us need to have to like just be with one another. <laughs> it's, I remember when I lived on the West Bank and they had this uh, kind of revolution over there to take over the housing from Heller Siegel. And so it was like this mix of folks who all of a sudden had cooperative housing, it created so much conflict and fighting and tension. Nobody really had the skills to know how to be in community with one another once they had that structure. So I'm feeling like I, I don't want to be out there sort of like uh, everybody's got to become a Buddhist, but I think more and more of us can just learn how to be in our bodies and deal with the kind of constant change and craziness that's going to be our reality for a while. Things are changing and shifting. So it's not fish, it's not fowl, it's not this, it's not that. 
Something is trying to be known and something is trying to manifest. And it's trying to come through us. But if I look at you as being, and I've been conditioned to do this, if I look at you as being essentially other rather than relative, there's no way to go forward. Absolutely no way to go forward. And I think in this community, in this meditation community, we're beginning to see more and more diversity in our community. It's like one of the most um, vibrant things that's happening. So, um, we have to figure out what kind of culture we're going to have here. Um, How do we welcome people? How do, what, what are the skills and the practices you need in order to build and maintain relationships? Because I think for a long while, this has been an environment where people come here, learn to meditate, they sit, and then they go home, and then there's not much connection that has to do with how we need to live. Food, clothing, shelter. I mean, when we had community and extended family in Chicago, there were multiple things that we shared together, which was the fabric and the glue of our relationships. Caring for each other's children, uh, sharing food, letting one another know when jobs were available. Um, when you have life connections like that, it's, it's a very functional, practical thing. But we're conditioned to only tell people like us certain things or to share certain things with people like us. Um, the vision has to change and the behavior has to reflect that change. It was initially very odd for me to come here and be the only or one of the few people of color. And I think Mark and some others have done a good job of beginning to like open the door, but we have to take advantage of that, build on it, and at least have the idea that if we are in fact interbeings, if we are in fact related to one another, what does that mean? How do we how do we embody that? How do we do that? You can't be afraid, as most of us introverts are, to reach out, to at least smile, to say hello, to ask how are you and really mean it, or to find a way within this community to maybe create a smaller group of people who are have some shared interest and and really ultimately want to build the larger community. 
And we've got some groups now, you know, check them out or create another one. Um, I really feel more safe and secure when I see a mix of people and I know that there's uh, some awareness of, of the deeper reality. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.